If you'd like to, turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is the first session in a conference that we're looking at heritage and particularly partakers of privilege. A few weeks ago I did a conference elsewhere where we were talking about heritage in terms of the blessings of the firstborn. So we've already looked, as you uh, may have gathered, at the, the blessings of Christ in the church. But what we want to look at now are the blessings of the church of Christ, really. So it's just that shift. We've seen the blessings that the church has through Christ. Now we're going to look at the blessing that the church of Christ is meant to be as we go forward. And I'm going to do this in terms of just trying to help us understand how the new and the old fit together. I know some people get really excited when it sounds like a heritage conference because it's going to sound like everything that's really old. But I don't want to go down that route. I want us to help us to see that we've got to know what to take from that which has gone before, how to refresh it, how to use it, but also how to bring new things alongside it. So we're going to look at several contrasts. I want to look in this session at new wine and old wine. In the next session, we'll look at new wells and old wells. And then in the third session, we're going to look at new wisdom and old wisdom. But as we're going through this, what I'm hoping is that you'll realize that it's not just all about the old and it's not just all about the new, but there's a wisdom that brings these things together. Now, I probably have to own up to something at this point because there are all sorts of ways in which people see church history. I'm one of these people who believe that do you know, theoretically, it would have been possible to have had a glorious church from the book of Acts right through to the present. I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe that there came a point when God said, do you know all those gifts and everything else? You don't need them anymore, so I've turned them off. I actually believe that it was in God's heart that these things should have continued. Now, I'm not naive enough to believe that there wasn't a moment when the church began to forget about the things that it should have been holding on to. But I don't see that as God sort of taking them away. And I believe that if the church had had that diligence at any point to seek the Lord afresh, they wouldn't have lacked in any area. So in some ways I'm saying I'm not a cessationist. And you're thinking, well, he's not a restorationist either, because in some ways he's not saying that God's sort of been withholding it and then say, hey, here's one you never thought of, or here's another one that you never thought you'd get back. I just got this sense, and I, this is... I'm not saying it's an overwhelming conviction that I'm going to preach at you, but it's this sense I've got that, you know, God always keeps everything in reach. But we don't always reach out for everything that God's got. And some of the reasons we don't reach out for everything that God's got is because sometimes we put tradition ahead of God's word. And if we had the ability to go back to God's word and look at it afresh, then we'd find all the fresh things that God has got. But you'd be amazed how many times the church wants to do a retread of where they were at last year. Someone parodied onward Christian soldiers once and said, like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. And, and that's the problem with tradition. If you're not careful, you tread where you've always trod. And this year will be a rerun of last year. And you think you've found the ultimate legacy, but you've lost the real legacy because you're not coming back to the word to find the original template for what God had on his heart for us. Now, I know that God is gracious, and I know that in every generation there needs to be something fresh from the Lord. But when it talks in, in uh, Second Peter about this present truth, 
He's not saying that there's a new present truth for every generation. But he's saying this present truth that we live in, which will be from the time the church is established to the time that the Lord returns, this present truth is what we live in, but the present truth needs to be brought home to us afresh in every generation. It's, it's like the Lord is capable always of doing something new, but what he does new never detracts from the original plan and purpose that he has. It's a refreshing of his heart, not a complete surprise, and here's something you never thought of. Well, it might be something we never thought of, but it's certainly not something he never thought of. And so we've got that pattern here that maybe when we're talking about legacy, we could look at it in church history in terms of the church getting surprised at what God had always intended to do in the first place and suddenly discovering it as if it was, wow, this is just amazing. But there's a positive in this that God wants to refresh in every generation. So in this first session where we're looking at new wine and old wine alongside each other, I just want to pick up some key phrases. The first thing I want to talk about is authenticity without dilution. I don't want us to get into this thinking that new wine is just the old wine watered down a bit. Because if you start doing that, and that does happen in some circles, you know. When Peter made that promise on the day of Pentecost, he said, this promise is to you and to your children and to those who are far off. Now, in my understanding of that, it means that the promise is being renewed in every generation. So in other words, it's not the promise that is to your children through you. It's the promise that's to your children directly from me. Someone put it well when they said, God doesn't have any grandchildren. I like that. It's great having grandchildren, but you know, God likes having children afresh in every generation. So it's good to realize that the present truth is what we're living in. And there's not going to be a new present truth, but there might be new expressions of that present truth as we, the church, discover that which has been on God's heart all along. And we're going to find, too, that you know, God in his goodness is not looking for a church that's fickle. We want that which is fresh, but I trust we're not going to be fickle. You know what it says in Second Timothy about those who've got itching ears. Uh, God delivers from itching ears that always wants to hear something new as if that which we'd heard before has suddenly become redundant. We might need to new hear it in fresh ways, but we don't need to be hearing fresh truth. Sometimes I say to people who come and tell me they've found a fresh revelation, I said, has the Holy Spirit really been keeping this secret for 2,000 years just to reveal it to you? Because when it says he will lead you into all truth, I get the impression that it's his heart to lead all of us into all of the truth. That, that just seems to be the way that God works. And this whole thing about always wanting to hear something new, see something new, be something new. Do you know, that was the Athenians' problem. When Paul arrived in Athens, they were the ones that were always looking for something new. And they really came close to missing the newest thing that God had ever done because they didn't listen clearly. You know, when Paul preached to them Jesus and the resurrection, they were so confused that they thought he was talking about Jesus and new God and the resurrection and new goddess. I mean, that's how confusing people become, confused they become, when they're always looking for something new. We want something that's authentic. So the passage that you've opened to is a passage which brings home this whole question of authenticity. We're on the day of Pentecost. People have been out on the streets speaking in other languages, and now Peter has stood up with the others around him, and he's actually preaching 
in the local language, which pretty well all of them can understand because they're Jewish proselytes and they've come up for the feasts and some of them are local people. So it says in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, said God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love this. I love it for all sorts of reasons. I love it because Peter actually preaches quite a good expository sermon from Joel here. But I also love it because when you get to the end of his expository sermon and he brings in other scriptures, he really does know how to exhort a crowd. In the early days of Methodism, they used to have preachers and exhorters. And when the preacher sat down, the exhorter would get up. And Peter could do both because it says that when it came to the end of his message, he just seemed to just keep going. It says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. I believe he'd so got it on his heart that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, that he wasn't going to sit down until he'd seen 3,000 people saved. Do you realize that on the day that the old covenant was established, when Moses came down from the mountain with the law, 3,000 people died that day. And the Lord had said, I'm going to establish a new covenant. And they'd heard him say that. And I just wonder, you know, I'm a bit of a lateral thinker. I just wonder if someone said, you know, wouldn't it be good if this new covenant saw 3,000 people live instead of 3,000 people die? Because this is meant to be a covenant of life. And I just like to think that maybe Peter was on this. You know, we can keep going until we've seen 3,000 people saved today. And you over there from Mesopotamia, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And you over here from Elam, madam, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Now, I've been in some meetings where they've done that, and it's really embarrassing. But here, 3,000 people came to the Lord because there was this conviction in Peter's heart from the prophecy of Joel that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when you've got that conviction, it just changes the way you do everything. There was such an authenticity in this group. But if you noticed that they were standing up and saying, we're here today because of a legacy that goes right back to the prophet Joel. We're standing here to fulfill a word that was given. And the incredible thing is that they were fulfilling it without there being any dilution of this word. It's as if they were fulfilling it in every way. They were standing there, old men, young men, <laughs> maid servants, men servants, people who'd given themselves to the Lord, and they were a testimony to the fact that God in his faithfulness had poured out his spirit. And you know, this amazing thing had happened whilst they were in an upper room, and the upper room could no longer contain them. The Spirit of God had just so overwhelmed them. They were told that when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. But it's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't say when the Holy Spirit comes, you will have to learn to witness. 
It was almost as if they were out on the streets and they were witnessing before they were aware of it. They weren't even trying to witness. They were out on the streets and they were just speaking to God. He who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks to the Lord, really, and not unto men. That's the focus of it. So they're out on the streets and they're overflowing and they're saying, God, you brought me out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, you've taken me out of the kingdom of darkness and brought me into the kingdom of your Son. You've brought me out of all of my bondage and set me free. And they're saying in so many different languages that everyone is hearing this and saying, they're talking about the mighty works of God. Now, when you talk about the mighty works of God, you talk about the mighty works that God has done for you. You don't go out there on the streets and say, I'm so glad you brought the Israelites across the Red Sea. That was a mighty work of God, but it's not currently relevant. And these people spilled out onto the street speaking what was currently relevant. And they were speaking it to the Lord, and they were speaking first in this language and then that language. And, and some of you might be a little bit technical on this and say, actually, Joel said they prophesied. He didn't say they spoke in tongues. But, do you know, actually, some of them were proclaiming the mighty works of God in their own language because it said the people of Judea also heard in their own language. So that's why sometimes in Scripture it says that when the Holy Spirit comes, they speak in tongues and prophesy. It's just being able to declare the mighty works of God. Because when God moves in your heart, you want to speak it out. Now, of course, when everyone was looking, there were the skeptics. Yes, they heard them speak these mighty works of God in their own language. But it was so uncommon that they were saying, Do you know, these guys are drunk. They look drunk. They're filled with new wine. Now, what they didn't realize was they were actually speaking the truth. <laughs> These people were filled with new wine, but they were filled with new wine of the Spirit. Actually, it amuses me when Peter says, These men are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's only the third hour of the day. <laughs> they must have been a very sober bunch in Jerusalem, because I certainly have met people in the third hour of the day who are well gone. <laughs> I remember once being asked to pick up someone to take him into detox at nine in the morning. And I said, do you think you'll be sober by then? Well, he certainly wasn't sober and neither was anyone else in the house that he was living. So it was a, an interesting experience. But, do you know, there's a, a f being filled with the wine of the Lord that surpasses anything. <laughs> it's almost like if you guys think this is drunk, you've never been drunk in the spirit. Because just to know the overwhelming presence of God is just so wonderful. And what I want to say to you is this. The years had not diminished this prophetic word. That prophetic word had stood there waiting for a fulfillment. And it still stands there waiting for fulfillment. Because the word of God never gets cancelled. This is that. Isn't it great to be able to say this is that? You know, it's that which was written. It should be true of all of our lives, if we really understand heritage, that we could say of everything we're experiencing, this is that. Because if it's not written, it's not worth having. <laughs> because God has declared everything aforetime, so that we can say, this is that. But what I want to be able to say is that this is that undiluted, <laughs> this is that that I absolutely authenticates what God says. It's not a sort of watered down version for the sake of the 21st century. It's as neat 
as it was when it was first dispensed. That's what we've got to see. And one of our challenges is this, that we do tend to dilute things. You know, we, 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 some of it is because I think that when we are bursting forth in all the newness, we can seem a little bit crass, and then we get a bit more mature. And so somehow we want people who come after us to come in already mature, as it were. And of course that doesn't happen. And, and we can give the impression to people that what we're actually looking for is a dilute version of what we've got, because that's more manageable. You know, if what I've got could just be sort of reflected, you know, in, and particularly people that are into control, they don't want anyone to have quite as much as they've got. <laughs> because if they've got someone who's got as much as they've got, or God forbid, more than they've got, then they've got a problem. But we can't live with this constant diluting of the wine. And I think that's something that I really want to bring home right at the start of this heritage conference. Our heritage is in the word of God. And it's great to see where the church has got hold of it and lived it out. But our opportunity is to live it out in the fullness. Some of you may have heard of D.L. Moody. He used to run a shoe shop and a Sunday school. I think his Sunday school must have been quite a Sunday school because he was known as a disciplinarian. But we won't go too much into that. But he did say, and this is the word that stays with me, and this motivated his life. He said, this generation has yet to see what God can do with a life that is totally yielded to him. Isn't that incredible? This generation has yet to see what God can do with a life that's totally yielded to him. So he was saying, I want this generation to see the undiluted wine. I want them to see it neat. Even if they start saying, why is this man drunk at three o'clock in the morning, at the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning? It's because there's something fresh. Now, I do realize that when you read on in the Joel prophecy, there are some things that are yet to be fulfilled because it goes on to talk about that, that great and awesome day of the Lord, which is yet to come. You know, the Old Testament prophecy always just speaks about the day of the Lord. And it's when we come to it, we discover whether it's the first coming or the second coming. I love the accuracy of Jesus when he preached his first sermon in Nazareth. They gave him the scroll and he read from Isaiah 6, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. But, you know, he stopped at a comma. And he gave it back after he said and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The next line is actually in the same sentence and the day of judgment of our God. And he didn't say that. He gave it back and he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So precise. And there are scriptures that we are meant to be fulfilling today. And we should be able to say to people, this is that which is written. That's legacy. That's her heritage. That's being able to take off hold of what's been left from before, the legacy from before, and make it real in our generation. I want to move on from that to a second thought. Because there's something else that we need to see when we're talking about new wine. And I'm sure you noticed it. These people were, to all intents and purposes, filled with the wine of the Spirit. And yet some of us know that there's a whole principle in the Old Testament about the need to cultivate the wine. They had three harvest festivals in the Jewish calendar. They had the first harvest festival when the barley harvest came in. And they called that Passover. 
They had a second harvest festival when the wheat harvest came in and they called it Pentecost. And then they had a third harvest festival, which they called the Feast of the Tabernacles, when they gathered everything from the wine press and the threshing floor. So these people were used to process. They were used to the fact that you didn't get wine until it had been through the threshing floor and the, well, the grain went through the threshing floor. The grapes needed to go through the wine press. And you may be saying here, well, where's the wine press? Where did the grapes come from? And I do believe with all of my heart that we need to be seeing new wine in our lives that's been produced from the wine press. But I also know this, that God is amazing, that he can take that which is just the, the almost inconsequential essence of our lives to date and turn that into something significant. And it can happen in an instant. You, know? you can be born again in a moment. It's not a case of, well, God wants new wine in your life, and we're now going to start a process where we're going to plant some tender grapes, and then we're going to harvest them, and then we're going to tread on them, and then, by God's grace, in 15 years' time, there might be some new wine in your life. God doesn't do it like that. He can take someone who's hearing the gospel for the first time and he can turn the water, the inconsequential experiences of their life that amount to nothing, he can turn it into wine in an instant. So newness doesn't always need cultivation. And sometimes it's good to remember that. When they were there in that marriage feast of Cana in Galilee and we know this from John chapter 2. Those waiters must have been so nervous when they took that water that they knew was water that was meant for purification ceremonies, bath water really, and they had to take that and they had to present that to the master of the feast and ask him to drink it. I expect they were expecting it to be spluttered out all over them. But he said, no, this is better. This is better what we've been drinking up until now is poor compared with this. This is better. And then he gave a little secret away. He says, most people serve that which is worse later when no one really is aware of what they're drinking. <laughs> but I just want to tell you something about the new wine that God brings. That, to be honest, it doesn't matter how much everyone else has been drinking. That new wine stands out. It stands out. And people think, this is better. Even if their taste buds have been dulled by goodness knows what that has gone before, when you begin to taste the new wine that God brings, you know instantly, this is better. So when we're talking about heritage, let's broaden it out a little bit. Let's think about our heritage. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, it's over, we're having a heritage conference. But if you look at my heritage, you know, I grew up here and I did this and I did that, and it all amounts to pretty well nothing, you know. I meet people, particularly American friends of mine, who like to tell me that they're descending from British royalty. I don't know how many Americans are descended <laughs> from British royalty, but it seems to be a great boast, you know. My great, great, ever so many great grandfather was... I think, well, I suppose if you actually, and I, you don't want to be cynical at this point, but counted it out, probably a lot of us can trace back to someone that far because it just spreads out, you know? It's amazing, you know, when you, when you start having grandchildren and 
You think, my goodness, now there are this many who can sort of say, I'm their granddad. But, you know, you go on and after you've gone, there'll be great, 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 greats. And I don't know how many would be able to say that you were their great, 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 great granddad. Isn't it scary? No, don't think about it. It's not worth thinking about. <laughs> but some of you might be sitting there thinking, I don't have a background that's worth having. I came from a, a, a nowhere place, a nowhere family, doing nothing of any consequence. They'd never have me on that television program where they sort of try and find out your background because everyone would die of boredom before you got past the first boring little block where you were born. And it, it's, it's, but isn't it incredible that none of that matters because God can take anyone, no matter what, and say, from now on, it's as if you were brought from the best vine that anyone could possibly imagine because you've now entered into the blessings of the firstborn. In a sense, that kind of heritage doesn't hinder you when you discover your new heritage in Christ. You suddenly say, there's new wine, there's new wine, this is new. I'm a new person. Some people live in fear of actually the, the, the problems of the past being visited upon us. Now, I'm not saying you need to be stupid and say, you know, everyone in my family died at 30 because of certain particular things, so I'm not ever going to be checked up. I'm not saying that, but I'm, I'm just knowing for a fact that you don't have to live the past. You don't have to die young because everyone else. I remember when a certain famous footballer has the same surname as me, who I discovered was a distant relative. He died at the age of 59. Okay, and uh, I was coming back from speaking at a meeting, and I'd, I'd fallen asleep in the car, and it was on the six o'clock news. And Trevor woke. When I woke up, Trevor said, "I've got some sad news for you." I said, "What do you mean sad news? We've been in the car for the last hour, and I've only been asleep. What sad news can you possibly have?" He said, "Your cousin's just died." So I thought, "What do you mean?" And then I realised that he was talking about Peter Osgood. And then, um, for those of you who don't know, he used to play for Chelsea in England and all the rest of it. Okay, but. But when I, when I get home, my brother rings me up and he says, Hugh, do you know Peter Osgood's just died? And he's 59. Dad died at 59. Uncle Don died at 59. Everyone dies at 59. Now he's died at 59 and I'm 57. I said, what are you moaning about? I'm 59. <laughs> <laughs> But you don't have to live with the expectation that the past is going to be repeated. You've got a new heritage. And it doesn't matter how bad the grapes were in the past. God can actually set up a whole new vintage in your life from day one. Now having said that, I believe with all of my heart that God still wants to bring new wine into your life. You know, you get the new wine when you're born again and you're sort of, oh, wow, you know, I'm born again and this is great. And, you know, I've got the authentic, undiluted, you know, you can almost write the song about I've got the authentic, undiluted spirit of God on the inside of me. And you want everyone to know this. But then after a while, it's almost as if you need more of the authentic, undiluted wine of God in your life. And you're saying, Lord, I want more of that, more of that, more of that. And then you discover that the way the Lord brings new wine into your life as you go on is by actually treading the grapes. 
You know, whereas you think it's always going to be just a bit more bathwater, Lord, and just, you know, turn that. He'll say, no, I want to start working on some of those experiences that have come in your life and turning that into the wine of the Spirit. And some of us have been through this. You know, we think we're doing really well. We brought forth the fruit of the Spirit. We've got all these lovely grapes. You know, we're saying this one's peace and this one's long-suffering and this is that. And then you think, what are you going to do with all of this wonderful fruit I've got in my life? And the Lord just smiles at you and says, crush it. And you think, well, that doesn't seem fair. And you think, that could be painful. And, And many of us in the past have experienced real pain where someone has come along and crushed all our fruit. Because there are people out there with very large feet that trample over everything that we do. But in Scripture, we're told it's the Lord who treads the winepress. There's that amazing passage in Isaiah 63, those early verses where it says, Who is this that's come from Bosra with his garments stained? And then it goes and says, This is the Lord. He has trodden the winepress alone. Now that is the winepress of his wrath. But the God who treads the winepress in wrath can also supervise <laughs> the treading of the white press in your life so that it doesn't push you beyond that which you can bear. I can give you this as a testimony. When God decides to turn the fruit in your life into the wine of his spirit, he has ways of doing it, which may seem painful at the time, but in the end you know that it's been God who's been at work. And we don't need to give the devil the credit for that which God in his grace and gentleness has actually done with more aplomb and sophistication than any of us could possibly imagine. I've been through tough times. Everyone in ministry has been through tough times. I was virtually knocked out for about five years with chronic fatigue. During that time, everything hit us. My son was in a motorcycle accident, lost his leg. We had just one thing after another after another. But my testimony in all of that is the devil might have tried to do his worst. But you know... He is only the one who considers that he rules in this world. There's another one who overrules. And the one who overrules made sure that whatever was going on at that time has produced new wine in my life. And I know that. When it says the Lord restores the years the locust has eaten, he more than restores the years the locust have eaten. The locust might be chomping away at things, but I tell you what, God doesn't let anything be lost in the end. And he can actually bring something forth from your life. So praise God for the newness that comes without cultivation. But praise God for the new wine as you grow up in the Lord that doesn't come from the bathwater, but actually comes from the fruit that's being produced in your life, which he's prepared to take to the wine press so that there might be something that's an even greater testimony from those grapes than you ever possibly imagined. Do you know... Moses turned aside to see a burning bush. No, he didn't. He turned aside to see a burning bush that wasn't consumed. It wasn't the burning bush that caught his attention. It was the fact that it wasn't consumed. And our testimony has to be that no matter what we go through, we're not consumed. (laughs) Because we know that we've got a God who's bringing us through. Just touch on one more thing. I've called it maturity without stagnation. And we need to go to Matthew 9, which I think some of you have been expecting me to go ever since I started talking about new wine and old wine. Because in Matthew chapter 9, we've got that wonderful passage where Jesus talks about new wineskins. And in Matthew 9, I'm going to read from verse 14. 
Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pours away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This passage, when you read it with all of its sections together, is a passage which talks about process. It's saying about the disciples, for example, that there will be a time when they fast. Now, I know the bridegroom is always with us, but there is a sense in which we can experience the bridegroom's presence even greater now when we give ourselves to times of set-aside spending time with God and everything else. Now, in their initial enthusiasm, fasting wasn't their pattern. Because you do need to realize that when you fast, you're seeking the Lord. It would have been a bit silly if when the Lord was standing right next to them, they were fasting and saying, I'm seeking the Lord. He would probably have said, excuse me, I'm here. I'm right here. But they are being told, and John's disciples are being told this, and the Pharisees are being told this, that there will come a time where, where fasting becomes the pattern. So there's a sort of progress, isn't there? Now, do rejoice that the Lord's with you. I'm not suggesting that we have a continuous fast. But there are times when it makes sense. And it has to do with, with going on to maturity. And so we move from that comment to another one where the Lord says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. I believe, you may disagree with me, but every time I read this, I think this is a, an, an exhortation to get shrunk. <laughs> you probably don't think like that, but to me, I see old garments that need to be repaired. And I know that if I try and repair that old garment, and I'm just a piece of unshrunk cloth, the next time that old garment goes through the wash with me attached to it, it will end up more damaged than it was before I tried to repair it. Are you hearing what I'm saying here? So I think that there's an invitation to say, if you want to repair old garments, and some of us seem to be in the business of that, trying to help repair people's lives that are broken, coming into churches that are struggling, picking up responsibility in these kind of areas, you're not going to manage to repair an old garment if you're unshrunk cloth. Because sure enough, that old garment will go through the wash again, because that's just life. And you've got to be mature enough when you go through the wash not to rip the garment that you're seeking to repair. So it's like an invitation, and I'm not going to do an appeal at this point, come forward all of you who want to be shrunk, because it does sound a little bit strange, doesn't it? 
It's a bit like a store putting up a big sign, come for the great reductions, and you think, actually, I, I like the size I am already. <laughs> but there is a sense in which some of us do need to be reduced. It's, it's the way the Lord deals with us. It's a bit, another way, a bit like saying going through the wine press, isn't it? Yes, I feel as if I'm going through the washing machine. Well, that's because God, when he takes you through these situations, is making you better fitted to be able to do with any situation in which you find yourself. Are you getting a sense of what I'm saying? Yeah, I want to be in the repair business, not increasing the size of the rip business. And if I'm going to be in the repair business, then somehow I've got to say to the Lord, Lord, if it's going to mean I've got to go through the washing machine more often than other people for a season, so that I reach a point where I can be in that blessed position of helping others, then Lord, I'm prepared for that. Now I'm saying that to get to this, because the next point, as you all know, says, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilt, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. That's both the wineskin and the wine. Why do they need to put new wineskin for new wine? The answer, because new wine has not yet matured. It's obvious, isn't it? It's, it's got a lot of expanding and contracting that's going to go on before it reaches a point where it's safe in any wineskin. Now, of course, mature wine should be safe in any wineskin. Now, you wouldn't think like that in some places where you suggest that some of the old wine might like to be poured into new wineskins because they will say, I'm not going to fit in that. Actually, you'll fit very well in that because old wine can fit into any wineskin. It's not old wine that's got the problem, even though you might think that some of the old winers do have a problem. But <laughs> the reality is the old wine... Just think about it, can fit into any wineskin because it has matured. The challenge is that new wine can't fit into the wineskins that old wine won't rupture <laughs> because new wine might rupture those old wineskins. And do you know? God is actually concerned about losing any wine. Because if you pour new wine into the old wineskin, not only will you lose the new wine, but in the end you'll also lose the old wine because the old wineskin will have been ruptured by the new wine. Okay, This isn't rocket science, this is just just making sure we've checked out what the verse is saying. So what we're saying here, and the Lord's saying this, that when you've got new wine, you will need some kind of new wineskin. Okay? Now, I'm excited to think that, you know, in a greater degree of maturity than I used to have, I've still got a way to go, I'm sure, but a greater degree of maturity than I used to have, I should be able to fit wherever. Now, I know it can be a challenge, but it becomes less of a challenge when you realize that it's only by providing the flexibility 
that the new wine is ever going to be able to mature. Now, do you know why you're here today in all of your maturity? It's because someone provided a new wineskin when you didn't have any maturity. <laughs> and that's why you're here. And what we need to do for every new generation, because God does a new thing in every generation, we've got to make sure that that new thing that God does in that new generation has a new wineskin that we can fit into by God's grace so that they can go on to maturity. Now I get excited by that because I believe with all of my heart that, that God wants there to be something new in every generation. And I'm excited about the old wine and I'm excited about the old wineskins and I'm, I'm thrilled that we can have biblical authenticity and say this is that. But I want to say this is that which was written by, not this is that which was written by grandma, but this is that which was written by the prophet and go back into scripture. Because some of us are being contained in that which was written by Auntie Flo or great-grandma or great-grandpa. And, you know, we're living in that. And there is a legacy from that. And I don't want to deny the legacy from that, but I don't want to deprive the legacy that can be there in the future because we've lost the wine that would produce the future legacy. Now, that is my heart. I... When I look at the heritage that we have in the church, basically we've had a whole succession of new wineskins over the centuries so that we can contain what God is doing afresh in every generation. But to be honest, I don't think historically we've changed the wineskins often enough. You, you see what God began to do in the middle of the Victorian era. William Booth got a revelation that when it says, not many mighty, not many noble, that perhaps you'd see more people saved if you didn't spend all your time witnessing to the mighty and the noble. So he went for those, he put a big slogan up, go for souls and go for the worst. Because he believed that that's where the greater harvest was. Now I'm not denying that there isn't a place for reaching out to the up and outs, because there's plenty of those, but we also need to reach out to the down and outs. And do know that the Bible says not many. It doesn't say not any. So praise God for the sun. But there's a whole harvest out there. Proverbs talks about it. There's, there's much in the fallow ground of the poor that we've never ever tapped into. Because somehow that move lasted for a season and somehow no one created a new wineskin <laughs> so that we could reach out in a similar way again. We, we're slow in changing wineskins. We try and make them last for sort of 200 years when a generation probably only lasts for about 30. And it's just hard for us to know how to do this. But somehow we've got to look back at those brave people in church history that were prepared to say, this needs something new. This needs something new. Now, of course, if what they're producing that is new is, is so far away from what's in the book, then maybe, you know, it isn't the wine of the Spirit. But if you can see the essence of where people are coming from, even if it doesn't look anything like you did, because I tell you this much, that God is sufficiently creative 
to be able to use the same present truth in a different packaging in every generation. And just because it doesn't look like the packaging that you got excited about 30 years ago, or maybe 60 years ago, it doesn't mean to say it's not authentic. So what I'm saying about the new wine and the old wine is, let's find that which is authentic. Let's find that which is authentic, so that we can say, this is that. When they say these people are drunk and they're, they're filled with new wine, and it's only nine o'clock in the morning, you know, don't let's go into a long lecture about, you know, how it's all right to drink and all of that kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I give up on all of that. I, you know, is that a big deal, you know? Going to charismatic conferences where some people have to prove their liberty by being the first at the bar. I think, you know, I want to be the first, first there in heaven. <laughs> so I somehow, I don't, don't quite have that sort of same mindset. But we don't want to go into that. But we want to be able to say, this is that that is written. Yeah. And God will cause some of us to find things that we've never seen before. But as long as we can say, this is that which is written, then we don't have a problem. But when it's not written, then... It's not authentic. But don't be confused by the packaging. Don't be confused by the packaging. You can go to worship sessions these days where they have smoke machines. And we haven't got smoke machines here, but I mean, that doesn't worry me in the least. As long as the worship goes up to heaven, I don't care where the smoke goes. I can, <laughs> I can billow around the back and disappear. And, you know, if, if, if they think that helps... I mean, there were old Pentecostal preachers who used to put firecrackers in the pulpit so that when they were talking about hell, it sounded more dramatic. You know, I'd, uh, there's hardly anything that hasn't been around before, but some of us haven't seen it before. So to us, it's like, whoa, no way. But if they can say, this is that, and it's an authentic, undiluted version of what's in the Word of God, I want to embrace it. But I also want to say to them and to us, <laughs> friends, God has just given you new wine from bath water. We've all been there. <laughs> you will find as you go on and you start producing fruit in your life that God will give you new wine too from some of that fruit that's been produced in your life. And that's part of his work as well. And guess what? Those of us who've been around a long time, we need to realize that just because we are a bit more mature than we used to be, it doesn't mean to say the maturation process is completely over. And we might even benefit by being mixed in with some new wine and being a new wineskin. So I love old wineskins, but I know that the last thing I want is to lose new wine. And old wine for that matter. So we need to have that flexibility. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you have to pull down church buildings because if you're thinking just buildings and locations and history, you're missing really what a wineskin is. <laughs> a wineskin, for some people, has become the building. <laughs> but that was never God's intention. It, it, was, it was that which gathers us all in and keeps us within that identity. It might be a local identity because God has a heart for local church. 
which means that you're suddenly brought into a locality. And we're going to have to look at that in the next session because old wells, new wells is a big topic, really. But you have to have that sense in your heart that no matter how much that framework has hardened around you, that by God's grace, you can find some flexibility. Now, I don't know quite how it works, but I know it works. I've seen that which looked hard and immovable find a new flexibility through the grace of God. You can come to him and say, Lord, yet this thing seems to be a real tired old leather bottle, cracked and just about to give out. But Lord, if you can restore the flexibility to this that will enable the new wine to come in, then Lord, we want the flexibility. And in some ways you can do all of that without despising the heritage that you've had but in some ways enhancing the heritage. So, new wine, old wine. I believe that God's got lessons for us in this. <laughs> some of this may need unpacking a little bit, but I think we've just laid down some principles. So I'm just going to pray that God works those principles into our lives and that we can explore a little bit more as we go forward. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you, we just ask that you might... Give us that sense afresh of the importance of the newness that you bring in every generation. You are such a wonderfully creative God that you can do it and you can do it again and you can do it again and again and again and yet every time there's a freshness. Lord, it's not that we're crying out for something new as if we've got people with itching ears and the fickleness of the Athenians as they were in Paul's day. But Lord, there's a cry in our hearts. Lord, we want the fresh alongside the familiar. It says in your word that a good steward brings out from his storehouse that which is fresh and that which is familiar. Lord, help us to understand what you're doing in your church so that we might see these things come together for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just going to ask us to stand for a moment.